Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, it is absolutely my privilege to get to share the message with you this morning. My name is Wendy Lowe. It is my absolute honor to be chair of the Board of Governors here at Centre Street Church. Uh, In my professional life, I am Vice President of Advancement at Ambrose University, uh, a position that I started in November of this year, or well, I guess it was last year. And prior to that, I was 26 years uh, giving leadership to the Calgary Pregnancy Care Centre, a ministry that has been supported by Centre Street for over 20 years. We're going to talk about restorative justice today, and I want you to know that we're going to be using a different definition than you would typically hear on restorative justice if you were listening to the news. Really, restorative justice, when you hear it in the news, is typically about victims being engaged in the sentencing of those who have uh, violated uh, or committed a crime against them. In the global perspective, we talk about restorative justice as something uh, like South Africa or Rwanda where people have lived through years and systems of great oppression and what happens in the restorative justice process there is that those who have been marginalized and abused in those systems are systematically Try, the, the systems try to empower them uh, and to, to build back some of what was lost in the process. We're talking about embracing all of God's plan, and I want to start today by sharing some statistics with you. These are statistics that I heard at the end of January. I was with a bunch of different Christian folks from around the city. We were praying for unity, and we were praying for the marginalized in our city. And before we began to pray, Dr. John Rook uh, shared with us some statistics. John Rook heads the Canadian Poverty Institute at Ambrose University. Some of you will recognize his name. He was head of the Calgary Homeless Foundation. John has spent the last 20 years of his life, more than 20 years of his life, working for the marginalized, which is a bit unusual when you realize that John is a PhD educated scholar and speaks Greek and Hebrew. Uh, He would be more appropriately placed uh, in in a seminary uh, doing that work, and yet the call of God on his life is to care for and make a difference for the marginalized. So let's begin to look at some of the statistics I think we should be aware of if we care about restorative justice. Minimum wage in Alberta is $10.20 an hour. Alberta was the very last province to get minimum wage up to the $10 point. Folks, if you live in Calgary, a living wage is considered to be $17.29. What's the difference between minimum wage and living wage? Living wage is what is required for you to be able to have a home, be able to afford to eat, and to be able to use public transit to get around. That's what $17.29 an hour will do for somebody. And some people are okay with a $10.20 minimum wage because, after all, it's mostly just teenagers who earn minimum wage, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. Let's look at what the statistics really tell us. 35 is the average age of a minimum wage earner. 88% of those who earn minimum wage are not teenagers. 36% are 40 years of age or older. 56% of people working for minimum wage are women. 
28% of people who work for $10.20 an hour are trying to raise children on that salary. 55% of minimum wage earners are working full-time. Let's go to some broader, more global statistics. Half of the world's wealth is held by 1% of the population. That's a statistic from Oxfam. I think most of us are sitting in the sanctuary today are quite comfortable that we are not in the 1%. But you are not off the hook, folks, because here's the reality. The developed world holds 75% of the world's fiscal resources and represents 25% of the world's population. Bill Gates is quoted as saying, you should be able to live on $650,000 a year. <laughs> oh, I could do so much more than live on $650,000 a year. And, and we're laughing because it just seems preposterous to most of us. Actually, Bill Gates is to be commended because what he was doing, he is one of the 1%, what he was doing was challenging his friends and colleagues who are the 1% to say, really, how much money do we need to hold on to? You know, a, a friend of mine sort of said, do you think the 1% have a hoarding problem? <laughs> and you know, I think, he's got, I think he's on to something. Like really, how much money do you need? But here's what I don't want us to do today. Because we have a tendency to look at the 1% and we let ourselves off the hook and we forget that most of us in this room are probably the 25% who hold 75% of the world's resources. Should Christians care about these issues? Do you know that the highest paid CEOs in Canada earn $42,000 a day? If you're working for minimum wage, you earn $21,000 a year. It takes you two years to, to make what somebody else makes in a day. We have a distribution problem. Let's put it into the reality for many sitting in this room today. 19% of Calgary households, the combined income of people living in the household, have $150,000 a year that's earned. 39% of Calgary households have a joint income of $100,000. 72% of Calgarians own their homes. Many with the bank. <laughs> 23,000 people live in poverty in our city. And that includes many children. In any given year in Calgary, 21,000 unique individuals will access a shelter bed. Calgary's last absolute homelessness count identified over 3,500 homeless people on a single night. We come up with our absolute homelessness figure uh, by doing this. All of the shelters count how many people are in their facility on that particular night, and the frontline shelter workers go out and spend the whole night walking the streets of Calgary, the parks of Calgary, and counting up the people who we term as sleeping rough. They're not coming into a shelter. But they absolutely do not have a home. Calgary had an interesting week this year. We were in the news a couple of times. 
We were in at the beginning of the week because we were told that we have the world's best mayor. And we all had a laugh when the mayor got crowned, right, with the tiara. Um, but, you know, I don't know about you, I was kind of pleased that people noticed our mayor and that we have a good mayor. A mayor who, quite frankly, one of his early pieces of work when he came into power as mayor was to put together a commission on poverty. And how can we develop, like the plan to end homelessness, a plan to deal with poverty? I was a little bit less excited when we were named the epicenter of homelessness for Canada. Not so proud of that. Folks, it's not that we're doing a bad job on addressing the homelessness issue in Calgary. It's that people hear about the Alberta advantage. And they come to Alberta not realizing the housing crisis that we've got, the affordable housing crisis that we've got. They hear about jobs where you can make lots of money and they come not realizing that they don't have the skills. And they end up earning $10 an hour and they end up in shelters and they can't afford to go back to where they came from. And they're trapped in our city. On any given night in the city this winter, when it has dropped to very low temperatures, the YWCA has drug out cots, put them in a meeting room, and 50 women are sleeping on cots. These are not shelter beds, folks. There aren't the facilities to go with this. There simply is no safe place for these women to go, and the Y does not want them to freeze to death, and so does this system. 50% of women who try to get into a domestic violence shelter in the province of Alberta are turned away each year. Folks, when I was at the pregnancy care center, I saw this happen on more than one occasion. We would have a woman come in and she would say, I need to get out of my situation. My partner is beating me. Um, and I need to be safe. And I have watched fabulous young practicum students from Ambrose University, from Mount Royal University, from the U of C. Sometimes two or three of them spend the whole day on the phone trying to find a place for a woman fleeing domestic violence. And it's five o'clock. And there's no choice but to say, we can't get you in anywhere. And women are returning to scary and dangerous circumstances. In our city, folks, the housing issue is most critical. We have the most trouble finding space for women and children. There is a biblical mandate to care for widows and orphans. I'd like you to rise with me now, if you're able to rise, and we are going to read scripture. From Matthew 25, the words of Christ to us. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right 
and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or, or, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You can be seated. Pastor Henry has a book that he has uh, mentioned a couple of times, written by Gary Chapman. It's called The Five Love Languages. And Gary Chapman's book unpacks for us uh, the reality that we all have unique personalities and we all have unique love languages. Ways in which people in our life who want to express love to, uh, to us can do it, and it's deeply significant to us. And so for some people, their love language is, is gifts. Um, you know, I'll give you a little hint. If your partner uh, has a love language of gifts, Valentine's Day is this week. You can be spared much grief uh, for getting uh, that, you know, they want, to, they want a gift on Valentine's Day. Other people are like, eh, gifts don't mean anything to me. But what I really need to hear from somebody who loves me are words of affirmation. I really appreciate the generosity of spirit and the way that you just pitched in and helped on, on this issue. That really makes them feel loved. For other people, their love language is physical affection. These are the people who need to be hugged. Time. You know, there are people uh, that you can give gifts to, you can hug them, you can praise them, and if you do not make time spent with them a priority, they will never feel loved, no matter how much you do the other three things. And then there is the love language of acts of service. Uh, I have a friend who knows what her husband's love language is. She can do all those other things, but he never feels more loved than when she bakes him a pie. Right? Oh, there you go. 
Okay, we have a few people who, who have that love language. So my question for you today is, what do you suppose God's love language is? You know, we, I hope, are generous people and that we give our fiscal resources to God's work in the world. Words of affirmation, really that's what we just did in our worship service, was to praise God. Physical affection, I've never actually hugged God, right? But I have from time to time in worship raised my hands uh, in worship, a reaching out, uh, an, an expression with my body of affection for the Lord. Time. I hope that it is our practice as believers to spend time with God, to set a, time, a part time to read the scripture and to pray and to listen to what God might be saying to us. And acts of service. Are we engaged in doing things for the benefit of others? But folks, I would be remiss to let you think that those things are what matter most to God. Because what we just read in scripture tells us very clearly what God's love language is. God doesn't want us to be at all confused about what matters to him. And it's not that those five things we just talked about aren't something that pleases God. But God does not want us to be confused. His love language is that we would care for the least of these. I was tempted as I was putting together the sermon and Vidi told me, you have exactly 35 minutes, Wendy. I went over in both services. I did 36 minutes. Ah, she's going to forgive me. Um... I was tempted to chop off the last part of the passage because it is a bit repetitious. But you know, it seemed to me that it was an improper way to handle the word of God. Perhaps the harshest words we hear Jesus speak in the New Testament is the last part of the passage that we read together. When we do not care for the least of these, he's saying, depart from me. That is sobering. So who are the least of these? Well, let's look at another passage of scripture. Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There were problems with marginalization in the New Testament church. The Jews saw themselves as God's people and saw the Gentile believers as interlopers. We are more important to God than you are. And Paul spent a great deal of his writing in the New Testament correcting that perception. One people group is not more important to God than another people group. Neither slave nor free. I want you to understand how incredibly radical that statement was in the New Testament church. Folks, slaves were not even really seen as people. And here was God's kingdom at work, and slaves and slave owners were together sitting side by side, worshiping God. The reality of the life of a First Testament or a New Testament Christian woman was that she was marginalized in every sector of society. Some did not even see her as a person, but as property. And Christ comes along and removes women from marginalization to full participation in the life of the church. It's a picture of the kingdom. So who is marginalized today? People are marginalized because of race. They're marginalized because of country of origin. 
Some people are marginalized because they have mental or emotional health issues. Others are marginalized because they have cognitive or physical challenges. The poor are marginalized. Those who are victimized are marginalized. Those who are abused are marginalized. And those who are enslaved are marginalized. As we look at restorative justice, I want us to understand and answer the question fully. Why did Jesus come? You know, if I go into any evangelical church in Canada and say, why did Jesus come? This is the answer I can anticipate and will get almost without exception. It will be a variation of something like this. Jesus came to die for my sins so that I can go to heaven. Jesus came so that I could be adopted into the family of God. Jesus came so that I could have a relationship with God. And folks, those answers are right. Jesus did indeed come to secure our individual salvation. But folks, that is not the whole picture of the gospel. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom on earth. The world was broken at the fall. Jesus came in an act of restoration to restore us to relationship with God and also to empower us through the Holy Spirit to restore the kingdom of God. That is the work that we as believers are to be about until Christ comes again. We're to be building the kingdom of God here on earth. This is work that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't think it's any accident that we decided to unpack restorative justice as being core to the work of global ministries here at Center Street in light of where Pastor Henry has been taking us in the word this fall and in the new year. Generosity and listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit are very much the key ingredients of restorative justice. It's to live our lives in a generous way, listening to the promptings to each of us individually by the Holy Spirit about how we're to engage in restorative justice. What does the kingdom of God look like? It's a world where people are not marginalized where people are not discriminated against, where people are not used or abused. All things and beings are in right relationship with each other and with God. That's the kingdom we're to be at work on. Many people have said, Wendy, why did you leave the Pregnancy Care Center and go to Ambrose University? Really, folks, it's because I care about restorative justice. Gen Y, millennials, whatever you want to call this generation that is emerging and who will be the leaders of the church tomorrow, care passionately about justice. And I decided that at this point in my life, I could make more of a difference being involved in training young people for marketplace and ministry with conscience around justice issues than I could being on the front lines. And I cannot tell you how impressed I am by the, ca the capacity, the competence, and the character of young people. They genuinely want to make a difference. You know, fascinating to me uh, was how many students at Ambrose signed up to take a course on shock poverty last semester. Business students signed up for this course. Biology students signed up for this course. The behavioral science students who we expected would sign up for the course uh, were there. But 
they care about these issues and I want to be a part of helping them make a real difference. Global ministries. You need to understand that at this church, restorative justice is just what we unpacked for you. We care about people coming to know Christ and we care about the least of these. And as we're making decisions around what kind of ministries we support, we are filtering it through that lens because that's what we believe we are called to do. So that's what restorative justice is. How does this translate practically for us as a community of believers? Folks, there are all sorts of issues in our community that we need to care about. One of the things that I think we could make a difference on are basement suites. Our councillors and city, city councillors have had this issue come up again and again and again. And every time they send it back to a committee to study some more and we don't license any more basement suites. And we leave the most vulnerable in our city in a, in a continued vulnerable state. Because as long as we, we don't license more basement suites, we will continue to have illegal basement suites. Basement suites that do not have fire or smoke detectors. Basement suites that aren't actually adequate for an emergency exit. We need to have licensed basement suites. I am not naive. I know that if everybody puts a basement suite in their house, we still are not going to solve our housing problem. But we could go a long way towards giving somebody a home. In the social services sector, there's a term that we often use. It's called NIMBY. NIMBY means not in my backyard. How many communities in Calgary go, I don't want basement suites in my community because I might not be able to park right in front of my house on a public street. I might have to walk. Who knows who will move into my neighborhood if we have basement suites? Folks, the person who's going to move into your basement suite is the same person that you see at Subway when you're buying your $5 sandwich. How many of you like $5 sandwiches from Subway? Yay. Me too. Somebody who's earning $10 an hour made your sandwich. Do you think they deserve a place to live? I think they do. Folks, we could make a huge difference by simply calling up our aldermen and saying, you need to understand that when I cast my vote in the next civic election, if you have not voted for licensing more basement suites, I simply cannot in good conscience vote for you. Could you do that? <laughs> Minimum wage. Should I, as a Christian business person, think that I have a viable business plan if my plan is to pay somebody $10 an hour when I know that it costs $17.29 to live in this city? Folks, I am not naive. I have not spent my whole life in the social sector. I worked in the corporate sector for five years before I went into, into the social services sector. I can read a profit loss statement. I understand competition, but I understand also people's need for housing, food, and an ability to get around a city. It's not just the corporate sector that struggles with this. 
Sometimes the social sector struggles with this. I had a colleague who ran a social service type agency and when he saw the statistics on a living wage in Calgary, realized that he was paying some of the people in his organization minimum wage. And he went, the people who are helping the marginalized are also marginalized. And we must do something about this. And so he went to his entire executive team and said, we need to take a wage reduction and we need to give that money to the people who are at the lowest part of our org chart. We need to share. We need to have justice within our own justice agency if we're going to do justice work. Folks, you need to know that people who work in the social services sector are not making six-figure wages. This meant real hardship for that executive team who were giving money to people within their organization. How can you make a difference? Folks, you heard fabulous presentations and we prayed for three fabulous organizations. You can volunteer. You can make a difference one-on-one. -on -one. You can give to these organizations. One of the challenges we have on this issue is that depending upon your philosophical approach to life and systems, uh, you'll fall into basically one of two categories. A conservative approach to poverty issues very frequently sees the individual as responsible for moving out of poverty. Those who are more liberal in their philosophical approach will look at poverty issues and see systemic problems that keep people trapped in poverty. Folks, 26 years of working in the field, I can tell you it's both. I have met people who are trapped in poverty, and it's their choice. They could do one or two simple things and literally get a job and get on with their life. That's rare. More frequently, I saw people, and I've heard those who come from that, that more conservative philosophical approach say, there are lots of jobs in Calgary. If you don't have a job, it's because you don't want one. Folks, that's not true. A number of years ago at the Pregnancy Care Center, the government approached us and said, we would like you to run a program for us. We want you to work with single moms and help them get into the workforce. Those who are struggling, who, who can't seem to do it on their own, we want you to teach them the life skills and do employment prep with them, teach them how to do an interview, teach them how to get a job and keep a job. And you've got six months to work with these women and help them figure this out. We'll pay daycare for them, and we'll actually pay them to come to your program. So we entered into this program, and we were teaching computer skills and all sorts of things. One of the things we wanted to do was teach these young women how to dress, to go to an interview, and to work in their dream job. And so the dream job for these young women was they would love to be a receptionist in downtown corporate Calgary. So we decided that was the dress code for our program. Every day you came dressed appropriately to be a receptionist downtown. Took quite a few weeks for some of the women to figure out what was appropriate. One of the girls came in one day and yeah, sparkles and thigh-high slits were, were not appropriate for the office. Um, came in with a white shirt, nicely pressed, a black skirt, black pantyhose, black pumps. There was just one thing off about her outfit. She had on white socks, white ankle socks. Looked a little bizarre. Um, and so, you know, the facilitator was just encouraging her and telling her everything that was right about her outfit, and then sort of said, I'm just curious about why you've got the white 
ankle socks on. And the young woman goes, oh, pantyhose. She said, they're just, they're awful. She said, you know, like they just get crispy if you don't put socks on. Now, you gentlemen don't understand the world of pantyhose. Us women do. Pantyhose are 100% polyester. We put them on. Our feet sweat all day. Uh, if you wear pantyhose two days in a row, when you take them off and, and the, the foot sweat dries, pantyhose are indeed crispy. And... Uh, my, uh, my facilitator sort of went, oh, I think I get what the problem is here. And she says to the young woman, well, you do realize you can wash pantyhose, right? And the girl goes, really? You can? Everybody else in the class started to laugh at her, but one girl jumped to her defense and said, I don't know why you're laughing at her. I just found out you could wash bras. <laughs> Folks, really? Everybody can get a job? If you don't understand the basics of hygiene, really? Could those young women have worked in your office? Would somebody have been willing to walk with them and teach them that? You know, when I thought about that, I realized my mother never taught me to wash pantyhose. Rest assured, I do wash my pantyhose. Um, but you, do you know how I figured out that pantyhose need to be washed? Because I grew up in a somewhat functional home where pantyhose were hung over the shower curtain on a regular basis. If you grew up in a home that didn't function at that level, you're not going to know those things. Sometimes the issues, folks, are systemic and we should be concerned about the systemic issues. We have a program in Alberta called Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped. This is funding for people who are physically unable to work. And we allocate dollars for them to live. Frankly, I am not in love with how much money I spend on taxes, but I am really pleased to pay taxes for that program. Aren't you? I am like, this is not a problem for me. When I travel to other countries and I see people who are severely handicapped sitting on the sidewalk with a bowl, I am so glad that I live in Alberta and that we treat our severely handicapped the way that we do. But there are problems, folks. We had a young woman at the pregnancy care center who had a severe health issue. She absolutely was not able to work. She had a small child. Part of her physical health issue uh, led, led to some, some literacy challenges and, and, and stuff in terms of understanding processes. And you know what? One of my staff, somebody who has a bachelor's degree, spent 18 months doing the paperwork for her to get on to H funding. During that 18 months, she was living in extreme poverty. That's not okay. I was talking with a colleague at the Mustard Seed, and he told me that they have a gentleman who has been sleeping in a shelter bed for four years while they have tried to get him H funding. And there's no doubt in anybody's mind that he qualifies. It's just that the paperwork is so complicated. Folks, we have to address those issues systemically. You probably have a natural orientation to either work one-on-one -on -one with individuals and make a difference, 
or you're kind of a strategic big picture thinker and you can work on these systemic issues and help make a difference. What I know absolutely for certain folks is that we are all called to do this work. It isn't somebody else's job, it's all of our jobs. We're to restore justice. You know, sometimes it may be as simple as a single act in a public place. I had a young woman in the center who came in one day, she's a single mom, going to university, trying to, trying to improve her lot in life, and I noticed that she was wearing a wedding band, and I said, hey, what, what's happened? Have you, have you met somebody? Like, you, you got married? And I was kind of surprised, because it hadn't been that long since I saw, saw her. And she said, oh no, Wendy, she said, I am just so tired of people being rude to me on the bus. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, when I'm taking my daughter to and from daycare and I'm on my way to university, when I have her with me, um, people say things to me. And I'm like, well, what do they say? Well, they, they tell me that I'm a stupid single mom or they call me a slut. And she goes, I just can't bear to hear that every week, so I wear a wedding band so they don't think things about me. Would you stand up for her on the bus? I would hope that we would, that we would speak in her defense. I have a little pet peeve. It's when my brothers and sisters in Christ say to me, I don't watch the news, it's just too depressing. Folks, Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. There's a man lying in the ditch. He's beaten and bleeding. Your, in not listening to the news, are the person who wanders over to the other side of the road and walks this way. Because I don't want to know what's going on in the world. Because if we know what's going on in the world, something is required of us. Folks, I'm not particularly in love with watching the news. I don't usually go, well, what a fabulous day in the world today. Everything's rosy and getting better. That's not typically my experience. But we need to listen. I was driving to a meeting downtown this week, and I was listening to a news report. The UN Rights of the Child Committee put out a report about what's going on in Iraq with children. Extremist terrorists are killing and torturing children in Iraq. And this wasn't the first time that I'd heard it, but it was the first time I heard about two of the ways that children are being killed. I'd heard about them being shot and beheaded, and that was deeply disturbing to me. But more disturbing was what I heard on Friday morning. It was so disturbing, folks, I thought I might vomit. They're burying children alive, and they're crucifying children in Iraq. I'd rather not know that. My prayer as I was listening to the news, and that's what I try to do when I'm watching the news, is to pray, was God, what can I do? I know that this church is giving dollars to humanitarian aid uh, to groups who are working in Iraq. Um, I know that we made a significant investment in Syria and, and the horrors that are happening there last summer. Um, 
But folks, on Bow Trail going into downtown Calgary, what I could do was pray. You need to know that the kids who are being crucified in Iraq are from Iraqi Christian homes. There is no better way to terrorize Christians than to crucify Christians' children. Do we not at least owe it to our brothers and sisters in Iraq to be praying for them? Lord, how are you calling me to restore justice? I want you to be listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit about what you are to be doing to restore justice. I have a favorite saying. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. Church, it is so clear this morning that we've been challenged to put our faith our belief, our values into action and to do something. We've been challenged with the question, Lord, how are you calling me to restore justice? And I believe an appropriate way to end our worship service this morning is to pause for a few moments of silence and ask for God to speak. To ask him to make very clear to us what it is that he might be calling us to do. And so I want to invite you to bow your heads and let's spend a minute in silence, listening for God to speak. God, thank you that you do speak to us, and prompt us and move us and direct us. And so we're listening for you now to speak to us out of what we've experienced and heard this morning. Speak, God, because we're listening. God, thank you that you are at work in our world. You're always up to something good, bringing restoration and healing into broken lives. Continue to lead us as a church to have an impact here in Calgary, locally, across our nation and around the world. Continue to lead us forcefully ahead as a church to accomplish your kingdom plans to restore justice in this world as you would have it, Jesus. And God, for those individuals who have heard you speak to them this morning, give them the courage and the boldness to respond in obedience to what you are calling them to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.